This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 190, and today I sat down with Courtney Toll, the co-founder and CEO of Nori. Nori is a modern clothing care brand selling innovative hardware and consumable products designed to increase the longevity of your wardrobe, starting with the Nori Press, a handheld steam iron that removes the necessity for an ironing board. Courtney talks with us about what it's like to grow up as the youngest of three girls, to working at Alpha Sites where she mastered the art of cold calling, to getting the idea for Nori in her NYU dorm, and scaling the brand to eight figures in just over two years. I hope you enjoy this awesome episode, and thanks so much for listening. Hi, Courtney. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I'm so excited to hear your story in building Nori. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I mentioned this earlier, but I've been a longtime listener of the show, so it's cool to be on. I know. I can't believe it. I'm like, why would you do such a horrible thing? (laughs) (laughs) No, I, since the start of my journey, I've been really into listening to founder podcasts, and this is when I stumbled on fairly early. So definitely a full circle moment. That's awesome. And so I think you were telling me you, you listened to the Caraway one, and we just launched Sam's episode this morning from Floss or Flouse. I think I say it wrong all the time. I'm sorry, Sam. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. Thanks so much for being a listener of the show. I appreciate it. And it's funny, you were telling me that you were sitting back waiting for us to come to you. You're like, don't, <laughs> don't come to us one day and ask us to be on the show. I was, I was, I figure it's a more productive conversation when, when you feel it's going to be a productive conversation. So I think we'll we'll have a fun time chatting. Maybe you're like a master manifester. I don't know. Maybe you manifested this whole thing. Honestly, it is something that you probably will hear come up in my story. Every single year, my co-founder and I make this list on Nori's birthday of all the things that we want to happen in the next 12 months. And then we open whatever that sort of time capsule list is a year following. And it is funny. I, I have to say we're pretty good at manifesting thus far. And hopefully the trend continues. What do you do during the year to keep it going? Like to actually, are you actively trying to manifest and like envision these things all year long? Or is it just like you make the list, put it in an envelope, hide it somewhere, and then like visit it a year later and just see what happened? We really don't look at it. We put it in an envelope and put it away. But to be fair, a lot of times the goals are these sort of big reaching milestones that we talk about time and time again throughout the year and planning the following year. So inevitably, it ends up being a topic of conversation and something that we work towards. But it is fun because you quickly forget what you wrote down. So when you see that come to fruition, sort of proves that you're, you're headed in the right direction. That's awesome. I need to start doing that. 
I feel like, you know, I like to manifest things too. And I haven't gotten as direct and trying. I've given, not given up. I've been, yeah, I know, just like C plus effort, right? <laughs> I need to put in some more effort on this manifesting side. It's hard when you're really busy and which I'm sure you are to sit down and take that type of time. But it's cool when you have like a once a year, or even like once a month, if I was better at it, to really sit down and think about it. Because I do feel like there is something to talking to the universe. Yeah, there is. And I think you get stuck for me, at least I think I get stuck in this like execution mode where I'm like, that's how things happen. I just bust my ass every day. And I like work really hard on it and it'll eventually happen. But there is so much to be said for also using visionary work or whatever, all this other manifesting stuff with the universe, I totally believe in that helps give it a little bump sometimes. I think <laughs> so too. I think so too. That little bit of extra perhaps lock next to the execution. You know, maybe it's like 80% execution and 20% manifesting. What do you think? I think that that's a fair breakdown and we can both leave today and try and be better about this. <laughs> we just came up with a new 80-20 rule. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Awesome. So let's start from the beginning. I want to hear about what it was like growing up. What kind of kid were you? Talk about your family dynamics and stuff like that as a kid. Yeah, I had a really idyllic childhood. I grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut. I was the youngest of three girls and had the best childhood, really supportive parents. I was involved in a lot of activities, but from a really young age, I was just such a perfectionist. I was so driven to be a super high achieving child. And so much of it, I think, was rooted in trying to make my parents proud. And they were, if anything, the ones saying like, just try your best. It's okay if your best is, is not an A or a B. But I was definitely the hardest on myself. And I always have been very, very eager to succeed and achieve. Where does that come from? Why were you so hard on yourself? And I'm asking this because I watch my son who's two and a half and he literally like hits a ping pong ball with a paddle. And if he misses once, he gets so <laughs> mad. And I'm like, kid, you're two. Like, this is the first day. Like, you're good. You don't, you can miss exactly. all the time. Like, relax. I don't know where it comes from. I'm like, are we over praising him when he does good? So then he feels like he has to every time? Or I'm like, where does this come from? That he is like trying to be so perfect at two and a half. That's the thing. I do not know. And I always laugh because my parents really were, like you said, like, you can miss that ping pong ball. It's not a big deal. But it was to me. And I, I don't know where it came from. I think I looked up to my sisters a lot. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be like my parents. I think about it often. I'm not totally sure where it came from, but it's a principle that has driven me throughout my entire life. And I know that I'm very driven by people and people specifically that I care about. So often it's because I'm surrounding myself with people that I want to impress or people that I want to make happy. And therefore, I think I worked out much harder. Interesting. So what was it about your parents and your sisters that they did that you wanted to be like them? I think we had a very, very loving relationship. And therefore, in return, I just was eager to please. But interestingly enough, I actually lost my dad when I was 14 years old to brain cancer. And I think that that was a humbling experience to sort of see life is short, things change really quickly. And you also learn how you deal with adversity and stress, and it sort of becomes a learned method. And I think that 
in moments where things feel very out of control, my coping mechanism was to sort of be very in control. And I think that sort of further fed this desire to be high achieving that I could just throw myself into something and that could be a distraction from anything that was more difficult in my life at that time. Absolutely. Wow. That's such tough hardship at such a young age. So sorry to hear that. What did your parents do? What did your dad do? What did your mom do? Well, interestingly enough, my dad was fairly entrepreneurial and actually specifically in hardware. So somewhat full circle. I honestly, it's funny because I never thought I'd be in the field that I'm in. So it wasn't even that I wanted to be like him in that sense, but he was very entrepreneurial in pretty much everything he did. He started a number of different companies one specifically in hardware, working on a technology that's similar to what we now think of as soda stream, what carbonates water. And then interestingly, also my grandpa is very entrepreneurial. He was a huge part of my life, especially still is, especially after my dad passed away. Also very, very entrepreneurial. And I think that unrelenting support that I mentioned earlier by my parents was probably the key driving factor for me pursuing an idea like Nori. Wow, that's awesome. So you kind of have entrepreneurship in your blood. I like to think the same thing about my ancestors or like I've got, you know, a great, 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 great grandfather who he had like a cracker company. He owned one of the largest conglomerates bakeries back in the day and was one of the founding fathers of what we know of as today as Nabisco. Wow. So it's cool to, I love like Ancestry.com. Luckily I have an aunt who's all over it and like has massive tree. (laughs) You need that one family member. (laughs) Totally. I would never do that. You know, I don't, I would never do that, but it's awesome that she has so I can benefit (laughs) and learn more about our family. Exactly. So you have a grandfather who's also very entrepreneurial. And so at what point did you start to, I guess, before I ask that, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like when you were really young, what did you dream of becoming? And kind of how did that evolve over time? Really, I was all over the place. When I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher and my mom was a teacher, kind of goes back to emulating what they did. As I got older, I think that I was really interested in the idea of business. I don't know if there's a specific sector within business, but I think I was always pretty good with numbers. And so I was kind of driven in that perspective or rather in that direction. But I also really always loved being around people. I always say that I think I gained just as much from my extracurriculars as I did in my main classes. So anything that was really collaborative excited me. Um, People are where I was working closely with others, but I never ever would have suggested that entrepreneurship was going to be a path that I went down. And primarily for the reasons I outlined above, like I was eager to please, really wanted to be successful. And it's much easier to sort of meet expectations when you stay on the beaten path. And so the fact that I sort of associated my early career with so much risk was definitely an interesting perspective or rather an interesting decision. But I'm so grateful that I I have gone in this path. And when I reflect on the things that or decisions that my family members made, I think it makes a lot of sense why I also went down this road. It's interesting because I feel like in entrepreneurship, it's like, do you ever feel like you're pleasing anyone ever? You know, <laughs> like, oh my God. It's a good question. I mean, at times, no, but I think that that <laughs> is definitely the driving force. Like there's always more to be done. There's always growth to be seen. And therefore 
I push myself quite hard to succeed. But luckily, Nori has had some really exciting milestones met along the way that I think those involved in the company, specifically investors, have been really excited by. So what have been some of the first jobs that you've had? All throughout college, I did a lot of the normal babysitting. I was a dance instructor. Interestingly enough, my sister started a ice cream truck business to raise money for a college education. And I worked on that somewhat. But then as I got into college, I I started to veer more towards that business route and communications route. I worked at a media company that was focused on promoting good news to sort of counteract so much of what we hear in the news. And then my first real internship, I landed at It's sort of a consulting type company called Alpha Sites. It is an expert network company where you're sort of connecting certain business entities, consultancies, hedge funds, private equity firms with experts in a specific field that can impart their knowledge to help make a certain business decision, whether that be an investment, an investment in some type of corporate change. And I got really comfortable with cold outreach in that job. I was doing a lot of cold calling to try and find some experts for my clients to speak with. And I think it was there that my attention really turned back to what had been this idea for Nori. So you were there for a little over a year, it looks like, and getting comfortable with cold calling is such an important skill, especially as a CEO or founder or anybody doing sales. What are some of the learnings that you have from that job other than maybe through the cold calling? Yeah, so what the company really rewards is cold outreach. They sort of have a database of experts that you can share with your clients to speak to. But the goal of an associate is is to make as many cold contacts as possible. And you're not just reaching out to your average Joe, you're reaching out to someone like you, someone that's been incredibly successful in their career, often CEOs, former executives, and often people that are very hesitant to answer these types of calls. And so you quickly learn how to sort of drive a conversation and what is going to motivate the person on the other end. So of course, there's the monetary component, but it's also trying to establish credibility for the ask that you're giving. And I think that there's a lot of principles of cold outreach that I learned there that I then was able to bleed into the early part of starting Nori, which was heavily networking based. I was totally naive when it came to creating a hardware product. And so much of what I started to do was have conversations with experts, exactly what my clients were asking me to do. And I did it on the side while I was still at AlphaSite. So at nights and on the weekends, I would start to sort of do my own expert calls and learn about what it might take to see this type of idea to market. So how did you get the idea? So I had just started my career in New York City at Alpha Sites. I was living in a really cramped New York apartment. It was actually a dorm at the time because I was interning. So I lived in NYU dorm while in the city. And I'd wake up in the morning, super eager to make a strong first impression, not have a wrinkled garment walking into work. But I just didn't have the space for an ironing board. I hated the steamer I had from Bed Bath & Beyond. And I couldn't afford repeat dry cleaning. So I would try every do-it-yourself hack. I did the hair straightener method, which largely started to inspire the idea for Nori. I tried the ice cube in the washing machine, the shower steam, and this just put a spotlight on a really big market that is ironing and steaming that hadn't seen any real innovation since the introduction of the steamer in the 1980s. So I sort of had this initial idea for some type of tool that would remove the necessity for an ironing board and be a really convenient and effortless way to remove wrinkles from your clothing. 
And what about the spray? I've tried the spray before, right? Because I'm the same. I'm like, I do not want to bring out this crickety ironing board and feel like I'm in the 40s, 50s, whatever it was, you know, like ironing away. Yeah. And, you know, it's a bulky, ugly iron. Like no one knows the brand of your iron. Like no one knows. No one cares. It's a commodity. That's exactly it. Yeah. But I have used the spray where like you spray it on your clothes and then you kind of like smooth it out. And that works a little bit. Did you try that too? I did try the spray. The interesting thing about a spray is that it's largely trying to take the same technology of steam. Steam is just really hot water that is relaxing wrinkles. The spray is pretty much water. You're pretty much dampening your shirt so that the wrinkles can release. So it will work sometimes on items like cotton specifically. It's not going to work on a linen or a more sensitive fabric like a silk. So as I really got into product research, I and I really started to look at products like that, a large, large majority of that solution is is just water. You're just dampening your garment and and in turn sort of smoothing out the wrinkles. Jeez, they really fooled me. I thought it was like some <laughs> sort of like at least legitimate type of chemicals. There's some other stuff in there for sure. And some are better than others, but I wouldn't say it's it's the best way to care for your clothes on an ongoing basis. <laughs> Yeah, it's not really fun to use. And what you created is way more beautiful. So you came up with this idea and you're like, huh. And then did you like kind of validate this idea in any way? Did you do a survey? Or what were your next steps after you had the idea? We did. So sort of had this idea based on largely the hair straightener hack that I used. I would take out a wrinkled garment I'd lay it on my bed. I turn on my hair straight now after doing my hair and I would just swipe it over my garment and it had the same heated plates as an iron and it was ironing both the front and back simultaneously. It didn't have any steam. I didn't really know what temperature I was working with. So probably a fire hazard and it wasn't reaching across my garment, but it worked. It was sort of like an initial sense that something like this could work to remove wrinkles from your clothing. So once I had sort of found this DIY hack, I started to sit down with potential consumers and my co-founder and I ended up interviewing over 500 plus consumers to talk about what they liked about their existing ironing and steaming solutions, what they didn't like, and if they would ever be interested in a different type of product. And you're dead on. What they said was that people couldn't even name the ironing brand that they were working with. When we asked people to name brands in the space, they, they couldn't come up with them. There was no attachment to this type of product, a product that you should be using on a daily or weekly basis. Whereas in other markets where there was this innovative product or innovative D2C player, they could name brands, things like a toothbrush or a suitcase or a mattress. All of a sudden, there are these brands that people can name. So we wanted to take that same sort of principle and apply it to what was a very sleepy market, all validated by consumer feedback. That's awesome. What were some of the questions that you asked or, or maybe insights that you learned from those interviews? Well, we started really broad, just asking, what do you currently do to remove wrinkles from your clothing? We were largely interviewing a younger demographic, sort of younger millennials, older Gen Zs, the group that we ended up truly innovating for. And more often than not, people just didn't have a solution. One in seven of those that we interviewed even owned an iron and board. It was such a small minority of the, those that we spoke to. So we started to realize like, okay, the, the solutions that are on the market are not at all catering to this demographic. What would be important out of a solution that would? And a lot of people, interestingly enough, talked about brand 
product was of course mentioned, but not many people had too many tangible ideas on what that would look like. So it wasn't until we introduced this idea of kind of an elongated hair straightener that had a steam setting and had fabric specific heat settings that people started to get really excited. And therefore we started to validate that this might be a solution that people would try. That's great. And so once you're like, okay, I think we have something here. What did you do next? Well, still in my job, cold calling. <laughs> so I started to do what I mentioned before. I started to do some deep research alongside my co-founder. And we started with product development because hardware is quite a black box for innovation. There's a lot of capital that's required to innovate within hardware. So we just wanted to think about like, what's the next tangible step? Like forget taking this all the way to market. Like what's just like the very next tangible step we could take, especially while we're still in our jobs. And that was to get to a working prototype. So I reached out to like 19 different design firms to get a sense of what type of capital would be required to get to a working prototype based on the very limited brief that I provided. And we started to map out what capital would be required for that, for some legal work, for some potential patent work, if we're truly creating a new technology, and ended up deciding that we would need to raise about $300,000 to get started. So while still at AlphaSites, I decided that if I could raise the money from family and friends while still on that job, that I would then quit my job and dedicate some time to seeing this idea through. And that's exactly what I did. In about six months, I closed $300,000 on a convertible note and quit my job job in mid-September of 2019 and then hit the ground running with product development. That's awesome. I mean, raising 300K or just raising money in general for your first time ever is like, even if it's from family and friends, it's fairly difficult unless you had like a really rich uncle who was like, here's 250 or 300K, go find 50K. (laughs) So how did it work for you? What were some of the things that you learned? And I mean, was it all family? Was it some friends and some strangers, some angels? It was mainly family and friends. Luckily, I did have a circle that was fairly friendly to entrepreneurship. Like I mentioned, my family had a lot of entrepreneurship in the past. My co-founder's father is a serial entrepreneur, so he had a lot of contacts that we could speak with that could provide guidance as well as capital. So it wasn't easy by any means, but we also weren't just like pitching this random idea and asking for a very subjective 300,000. At that point in time, we had outlined like exactly where all of this money was going to. And I think one of the pieces of feedback that I often try to provide to founders with just an idea is don't go out like pitching this idea all the way to market. I know that people think that like investors dream big and want to see the entire opportunity, but especially in this market, if you're going to close money, you need to show like exactly what you're doing with it and exactly what they can expect out of it. I wasn't saying your $300,000 is going to take me all the way to market. I was saying your $300,000 is going to see if we can create this type of product and how it works when we actually create it. So it was very, very clear what I set out to do. And I think that investors, mainly being family friends, had a lot of respect for the very cut and dry nature of what we were trying to do with this capital. And we did put it to use for exactly what we outlined. And by the time that it was fully deployed, we had a working prototype and a lot of consumer feedback to validate the fact that we had stumbled onto something that we should take to market. 
Yeah, I think that's why they call it family friends, I guess, because they're willing to take the risk if they don't ever see their money again, right? But if you exactly. go to another angel or someone who's kind of, my question would be, okay, you raised 300K, what if you can't get to the next phase? That's not enough money to get you through launch to marketing to all the other things they need to actually build the business. So it feels so much higher risk, I think, when you don't address those things early on. But I think for family and friends, when they're people that are very close to you, they love you no matter what, they're going to try to support you. I think that's why those people are so important if you're lucky enough to have wealth in your family or friend network to do that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So you raised this in six months and then you got, it sounds like you were able to go to the races. You choose to design firm, I assume, to work with to create your prototype. We did. Out of those 19, we decided on one product development firm. They had a satellite office in China. So we had fairly clear visibility into how we could eventually manufacture this product overseas with this partner. And they had also worked with some other clients within our general space. Interestingly enough, there's actually not a lot of overlap between steamers and coffee machines. <laughs> so we talked a lot about hardware clients like Hamilton Beach. Remington, Conair, Cuisinart, and therefore I felt really confident in the partner that we ended up working with. And how did it go? How long did it take to do the product development? It took much longer than we anticipated. I think we spent one full year to get about two to three prototypes. I think all in, we ended up with over six prototypes before we eventually gave the go-ahead for manufacturing. And I could go on and on about all the missteps that we made along the way. But with something like hardware, you do, I think, need to take your time really trying to get something right and making sure that it's giving you the desired output that you're looking for. And as much as we were so naive going into this, I think that that really worked to our advantage because we could ask for the features that we wanted through and through, even if we didn't necessarily know it wasn't possible. So we could ask for everything that we wanted and then they could sort of bring us back to reality. And I think it ended up being an actually advantageous sort of partnership between the two of us where we shot for the stars and they brought us back to reality and we ended up with a product that was as close to perfect as we thought we could get it. Great. So obviously everything takes longer than we think. So it took a year, it sounds like, from maybe signing the agreement to getting through the manufacturing process, or was that just design? To getting all the way to what we call a golden sample, many people call it like a T1, T2, T3, to sort of saying, okay, now we're ready to begin production. And so then you started production, and how did you think about distribution, and what was your strategy then? 
it sounds like you probably burnt through the 300K pretty quick in that year to get to the golden samples and get to manufacturing. What was the next amount of money you had to raise and for what? Yes, we raised 300K, like I said, and and that sort of took us through all the way to this working prototype. We did some patent work, we did some legal work, and then it was time to raise this next million dollars that would see us through to launch. And that involved everything, including production, the creation of a marketing stack, and the building out of our distribution channels. Now, the ironing and steaming market is one that lives almost exclusively in big box retailers. When you get an iron or steamer, you're typically thinking about Target, Walmart, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Amazon. We wanted to be a direct consumer business. We wanted this to be a one-to-one conversation with the customer. And we wanted to make this a really cool, branded, sexy purchase, which feels totally in conflict with a product like an iron. But Nori's iron spelled backwards and everything from our branding to the design of the product to the actual performance of the product was designed to sort of change the way you think about this type of chore. And therefore, we thought direct consumer was was the best manner to have that conversation directly with your customer and also happened to be the way that our target consumers, 24 to 36 year olds happen to be shopping. That's awesome. That's such a great insight into what seems like something niche, but obviously is such a huge market. And very creative and awesome that you guys did that. And then obviously thinking about brand and distribution being different. So what was it like to launch or raise the money? Actually, you had to raise a million dollars. Is that what you said? Raised a million dollars and raised it in in the depths of COVID, which was super interesting. I was raising money for the iron of the future. And I was Zooming with our prospective investors in our sweatpants. And so (laughs) the necessity of this type of product seemed fairly far off. But I sort of made a case for the fact that I thought, vaccinations were sort of on their way to market and that when we eventually came out of this period, cabin fever would be at an all-time high and the desire to go out and get dressed up would only further validate the necessity of this type of product. And that resonated with some, (laughs) not with others. I think I spoke with over 50 investors to close the million dollars between 13 investors that eventually invested, primarily angels at that point in time. But by and large, I think that we raised just enough to sort of see through the marketing stack that we wanted to build in order to support a direct consumer launch. Great. So you got these 13 investors to say yes, you got some cash to launch and get some runway, I guess, for marketing as well. And so you had this golden sample. So were you like showing the golden sample over Zoom in these calls or did you send it to them? (laughs) Kind of. Yes. I I showed them over calls, but we also filmed a demo actually in the very room that I'm sitting in my family's house. (laughs) We, We came out to Connecticut and filmed a demo of ironing with this initial prototype. And that was enough to raise the money that we needed to see through launch. And then eventually we got them all samples prior to launching. Oh, that's great. So you're able to kind of create a video. That's always so compelling. You know, I did that with my first startup, actually, and I forgot I did that. And it was really compelling. I basically interviewed a bunch of stylists and a bunch of people that had these rental houses. And I put them on this video and interviewed them about how everything's offline. And it's a horrible experience to have to go to these rental houses and sift through all these thousands of clothes and waste all this time and how they can't build their own website because the tech just wasn't there off shelf to do it. And they didn't have the time to figure it out and digitize their inventory. And so I was able to do this whole video. And that was really compelling for early stage investors who have no idea anything about the industry or weren't really sure what those 
the customers we were going after and their pain points and how we were solving it. And so creating that video, I'm sure was super helpful. And obviously, once you do it, you have it and you can distribute it really easily. Exactly. And what worked to our advantage is that an iron happens to be an incredibly demonstrative tool. So it's not that you're just watching this demo, but you're really watching wrinkles disappear. And that did really well from an investor perspective and come full circle, it ended up being the real secret to our success from a paid acquisition standpoint. Oh, really? So you use that same video and ads and that performed really well? I think clips of that video, but more often than not, we have created hundreds of thousands of UGC clips with the help of numerous UGC creators of this iron in use. And repurposing that into Facebook and Instagram ads serves as a really excellent hook because like I said, you're watching it work. You're not just hearing a testimonial about why you like X, Y, and Z product, but you're actually watching it. And I think that that initial customer discovery that we did that allowed us to understand that this was a pain point that so many people were feeling to then show a solution has led to a pretty significant conversion. That's awesome. So you raised during COVID 2020. When did you officially launch? We launched in May of 2021 and it was advantageous. Vaccines were in the market. People were leaving home again. And as I predicted, luckily enough, there was a huge desire for this type of product. So funny. I really wonder what those other investors that said, no, we're going to be in COVID forever. I mean, what did they think? <laughs> like they just thought we're just going to live in a hole for the rest of our lives. I mean, that's such a like doomsday mentality. I definitely have gotten in the habit of keeping most investors I've ever spoken with on our investor update. <laughs> really? You're not like mine. I'm like the opposite. I don't know. I get really annoyed when someone says no. I'm like, you're done. I'm out. Like I'm not talking <laughs> to you anymore. Like not letting you in the... <laughs> It shouldn't be like that, though. I'd probably be better off that way. Instead, I'm like, hey, let's keep this door open. Never know when I'm going to need you. No, that is the smart way. That is the smart way. You know, they're just trying to de-risk their investment, you know. Exactly. That's good. So you kept them updated. Did any of them end up pulling through in the next round? So to date... We've raised just under $5 million and it's been staggered over a few different rounds. So we raised that $300,000, that a million. We did another convertible note for almost $2 million, And then we just recently raised our priced round in early 2023. There are definitely some investors that I think were a little hesitant that maybe one or two of them did end up investing in, in later rounds. But I would say more often than not, to credit your mentality, once it's a no, it's a no. And so probably not the best use of time to keep knocking down the same door. I think also different stages of companies typically appeal to different types of investors. And so as the company has grown, we're sort of looking at different sized investors with each and every round. What's your thought on the investors that are like, oh, it's not a fit for us, but we can introduce you to a few other investors. <laughs> Do you take them up on that? I hate that. I'm like, no, don't. I just think that if I'm getting an intro from someone else that passed on something, right. why would I take a look? Exactly. It's like, oh, we're going to take the thing that you didn't want. Okay, great. No, you only do intros on the companies you actually want to support. So then those intros are helpful. Exactly. Even if it's too early, it still doesn't matter. Like, because they know that you've done pre-seed before. And so now you're saying that's too early. It's still a no, right? It's so frustrating. And that's the forever excuse, right? It's it too is. early. Like of you, can, it is. <laughs> you yeah. can be as big as you want. And somehow it's always too early for many. <laughs> always, always. It's like, oh yeah, we've done a few of those early, but this is what happened. Oh, we get, we skinned our knees, you know, just so yep, early. Yeah. It's like, it's not my problem. You chose the wrong guy, wrong person to back, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. And then you're like, oh, what happened to those companies? And you're thinking like, oh yeah, the founder just gave up two months after we gave him money. It's like, oh, okay. You really know how to choose them. Like, <laughs> I know. I always I'm not going to give up. <laughs> I always think that most VCs websites say that they're the earliest stage, right? Like that right. they, they back founders it's never too from early. day one. Yeah. Day one typically means 5 million in sales, right? So exactly. <laughs> when you get there, come back to us. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's all over the place. So they're like, oh yeah, but we only do seed actually, but we did some pre-seed, but we only do seed now because I'm talking <laughs> to you and not, you're too early. <laughs> like, exactly. Okay. And looking back, what's something you would have changed or done differently? There's definitely a lot of small things, small decisions that I might have done differently, but I honestly, and it's going to sound cliche, like I, I really don't know that I truly would have done anything that differently just because it's allowed us to continually sort of reinvent our strategy year over year. Nori is in its second full year of business, but technically we launched in 2021. So this is year three. And each and every year we've learned quite a bit from our mistakes. I think that Right now, we are perhaps over-reliant on Facebook and Instagram advertising. The company has, has grown quite quickly within direct-to-consumer, largely backed by successful meta-advertising. But that channel is fickle. <laughs> and I think that the more that you can rely on organic acquisition and try and build a community that will come back for future products or will come back for gifting is a more sustainable way to grow the business. And I perhaps wish that we had focused on organic acquisition sooner. But at the same time, I also think that our, our reliance on Facebook advertising has allowed us to get really good at it, be significantly profitable on first sale. And, and having that basic structure, I think, is necessary to scale one way or the other. When you think of organic acquisition, what are some steps that you would take to achieve that? Well, one thing that I think is gaining traction fairly quickly among direct-to-consumer companies is this idea of seeding. I think probably 20 months ago, paid influencer was really, really big. And there's still obviously a huge, huge market there. But as people are prioritizing profitability, sometimes over top-line growth, to put a large chunk of money into a post or two can be fairly high risk. Whereas seeding largely just requires giving away product often to smaller micro-influencers that have a highly engaged but smaller audience. One of the brands that we look up to, Jolie, has really leaned hard into this method and seen some really great success. We now are trying to give away significant product month over month. And just since we've really started investing in this program since October, we've seen a huge uptick in organic growth. That's awesome. I feel like I hear just a landline ring and I'm like, it took me back to, I don't know, <laughs> 80s. <laughs> I apologize. I, this is what you get for coming oh out and, and doing a day of work. They still exist. People have landlines. That's amazing. I'm sorry. I hope that maybe you can cut that out. <laughs> We're definitely not cutting that out. I'm just kidding. That's so funny. Well, listen, you're at like your parents' house or something, I think anyways, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think my parents have a landline anymore, but that's probably my fault that they don't, you know, it's like, what is the landline? encouraging them to go to seller method. Yeah, exactly. I think they realized that, uh, I know my dad, I think, had a landline forever for his business. And I was like, dad, you don't need a cell phone and a landline anymore. <laughs> and half of what's coming in is just total spam. So you're like, just take that exactly. off. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. So yeah, seeding product with influencers, definitely a really important strategy. I think a lot of people struggle with trying to find influencers. How do you guys think about finding influencers? 
I don't know that it's necessarily as important with a seeding strategy to identify the top and very best influencers. When the average person thinks about who influences them, it's the people around them, whether they have 200 people following them or 200,000. And that's sort of the the methodology that we've adopted is that these smaller influencers typically have a, a more curated set of followers that are clearly influenced by something that they do given their following. And I think that everyone in a sense is an influencer. And so we really have, if anything, tried to prioritize as small as individuals with 500 people following them that are excited to receive the product, excited to share their experience about it to their followers, rather than often the influencers that have huge followings that are, of course, getting gifted out the wazoo and, you know, can only post so much on their channel without being overly promotional. So it's a balance. And I think that we have cast a much wider net with a group that has a much smaller following. I love that you said wazoo. I think I say that word like a lot and I've never heard anyone else say it. (laughs) (laughs) We're soul sisters. It's it's a bonding bonding word. It's an East Coast thing, I guess. I haven't heard that word in LA in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely not cool enough for LA. That's why I'll stay on the East Coast. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's our age group thing. (laughs) Anyways, so out of the wazoo, yeah, people, these influencers are definitely getting a lot of free products. And you're right. I think that obviously the smaller they're following, the more engagement they're going to have. Anyways, I always think kind of like under 100,000 followers, even under 50,000 is a really good sweet spot. I think so too. I think the ones actually over 50,000 followers, they start wanting to get paid anyways. There's definitely cut off and, and the payments are steep. So perhaps there's a case to be made and we, we've made that case in the past, but I do think that that seeding and, and having people post if they genuinely like the product ends up being a, a more authentic review anyways. Amazing. So you've had a lot of success on the paid side of advertising, which is great. I think a lot of companies struggle with that. Really finding you know what works is challenging. Do you guys use an agency or do you have someone in-house that helps you with marketing? Interestingly enough, we have maintained a two-person team since launch. We hired for the first time in October of 2023, and that was to bring someone on that was more focused on organic acquisition. So we have an agency that we partnered with since launch. We actually chose an agency that was owned by one of our investors. I think always trying to surround yourself with people that have that same amount of buy-in and excitement around the brand as you do is a way to put yourself ahead, especially when you're working with an agency that's managing a whole bunch of clients. So we launched and started to invest fairly quickly in in paid acquisition. We also partnered with an email team. We found the former head of PR at Aritzia was taking on passion projects at the time, and she agreed to take us on as a passion project and has been with us since launch as a freelancer and has just done an absolutely incredible job getting press outlets really excited about innovation in the irony and steaming market specific to Nori. And that has therefore fed our paid acquisition channel. And I think the key takeaway here is is building a marketing stack to support your direct consumer channel, but making sure that all of the aspects of that marketing stack are feeding one another. Affiliate is the same way, like an influencer. If you are partnering with an influencer in exchange for content, that content should ideally also be repurposed into an ad. And us sort of creating this fairly holistic marketing stack that's fed itself allowed us to reach a million dollars in sales within the first seven months of business. And we scaled 5X year over year into 2022 and hoping to end 2023 at over eight figures. That's awesome. 
Yeah, with that content, you can really use it in so many different ways. And I think I just did a talk in 2019 about this once. And I think Movement Watches was one of like the first companies yeah. that used to put some of that content, even just on their website. So they would have like influencer content on their product pages. <laughs> well, they were definitely a first mover because you're so right. Like I think for the longest time, it was this like really studio, highbrow content that people were used to seeing in in TV commercials and now I think that especially younger consumers prioritize that very authentic, low editing <laughs> budget type of content, especially on Facebook and TikTok. Yeah, absolutely agree. Amazing. So what is next for the brand and what's some final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, Nori very much started with this hero product that was the Nori Press, this next generation steam iron. And now we're hoping to be this next generation clothing care brand with the goal of increasing the long longevity of your wardrobe. So we've already introduced another product that is our fabric shaper, removes pills from your clothing. We have some accessory products that work alongside the Nori Press and we have another clothing care product coming out in early 2024. So product expansion is big for us. I would also say that expansion across channels is big. So we are still over 90% online, but we are partnered with companies like Amazon, Williams-Sonoma, Bloomingdale's, Crate & Barrel, Zola, and we're hoping to expand retail channels there as well. And then I would say the last thing is co-branded partnerships is something that we've had a lot of fun with. Introducing the Nori Press to another audience with the use another brand or talent. We just launched a co-branded Nori Press with Rachel Zoe, the celebrity stylist. and. Nice. It was an awesome way to meet an entire new group of people, typically that's already clothing obsessed and, and eager to care for their clothing. So quite a bit in the pipeline here. And I'm really, really excited to continue to drive forward. You should definitely tap into wardrobe stylists for sure, yes. because this is more of a professional tool for them to use on set. I know a lot about that world. So let me know how I can be helpful. Oh, that would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Courtney, for being on the show today. It was awesome hearing your story and building Nori. Congrats on all of your success. And thanks again for sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.